Okay, in this lesson we are briefly overviewing what the Bible says about sex in marriage. Of course, we've seen that the Bible talks about sexual immorality a lot. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Um, We're talking about what it says about sex in marriage. So let's say a word of prayer quickly and then jump in. Lots to to get through here. I'm glad we're able to start earlier. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask for your help to hear your word um, about something that can be really challenging. Um, I pray that you would strengthen me, help me, and help each of the hearts that's hearing this, um, that it would be your truth that is what sinks in and helps us wherever we're at, whatever life situation we're in. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am confident that this is the most sensitive lesson I've ever taught. And that is not because there's something taboo about talking about sex. It's not that at all. It's just because there are so many ways in in which this can be a painful topic. There's such a diversity of ways in which this can be a painful topic. Many people have experienced some type of either child sexual abuse or some type of assault or intimate partner violence or something like that. There are people who have a long, um, maybe they had a long history of sexual relationships uh, before they came to faith in Christ and were saved. Um, and that's just memories they, they can't get away from. There are, there are marriages in which physical things make their sexual relationship very difficult. There are marriages in which mental things make the sexual relationship very difficult. There are of course, there are marriages in which sexual sin has made things very complicated and, and difficult. I could just keep going with examples. So <clears throat> I, I want to be, I, I, I pastored long enough to be involved, have been involved in all of those different types of situations with people. So I want to be very sensitive to those things. At the same time, I, if we get bogged down in all of those things, we'll never get through <laughs> just trying to see what the Bible says. So I'm just going to try to give us a fairly simple Bible overview of what the Bible says about sex and marriage and try to be as careful as I can, and you can always come talk to me about these, these things. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm jetting out of town literally tonight not to get away from you talking to me about this, okay? Um, seriously, we are not the kind of church where the pastor stays at a distance and you can't get to him. And that makes this kind of thing harder and better. Um, because I know you, and in a sense, that makes it a little harder. But you know me, and I know you, and that's the way it's supposed to be. This is your pastor talking about these things. So, uh, first of all, remember our, um, this from a few weeks ago when we were in First Thessalonians 4. God's standard for sexuality is sex between one man and one woman in a faithful marriage expressed in a way that demonstrates love for God and one another. So we talked about the first part of that already. Today we're talking about the second part of that. Just because sex is in a marriage doesn't mean it's automatically good. It still needs to be expressed in a way that shows love for God and love for one another. So we're talking about how we would honor God with sex in marriage. Um, why did God give us sex? We're gonna, what I'm going to do here is just show you a list of six reasons And then as we work through the Bible, we'll see these reasons come up 
lots of times. So I'm not teaching them right now. You'll see them later. We're just going through the list. For the creation of life, for pleasure, joy, and comfort, for unique oneness, for the remembrance and expectation of our joyful relationship with Christ, to fight against Satan's attacks, and for the glory of God. And so I'm going to just keep this slide up on the screen a lot of the time today, just so that as we look at the passages, we'll be like, oh yeah, there's that in that passage, and there's that in that passage. Um, Just one comment about the last of these. It is for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, glorify God with your body. And both before that and after that, he's talking about sex. So, God-honoring marital sex is spiritual. Like, it glorifies God. It honors Him because He made marriage. He made our bodies. He made sex. And so to enjoy them in a, in a, in a God-honoring way is really is worship. It's, it's a right response to, to Him. It does glorify Him. Okay, will you take your Bible now and let's start in Genesis and just work our way through all of the main passages that are about sex and marriage. Again, not, not, this doesn't include all the passages that are about immorality, um, but <clears throat> the, the positive passages about this. Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam. Then from him, God creates Eve. He brings Eve to him, verse 22. And so verse 23, Genesis two twenty-three. Then the man said, this, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He had been living with just animals. and <laughs> He was so excited for this human being. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That, that phrase, one flesh, is more than just sex. It's a complete bringing together of two individuals into one new family unit. But being one flesh certainly involves sex. In verse 23, Adam's excitement about Eve is not exactly hidden. (laughs) And so it's no surprise that verse 23 leads to sex in verse 24. So we see here from the very beginning that sex and sexual pleasure are good gifts from God. As a part of a uniquely close relationship, There should be, in God's purposes, greater oneness between husband and wife than in any other earthly relationship. You belong to one another in an unparalleled way. And sex is just one little part of that or or a symbol of that. I note here in your notes 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20, because that passage challenges us to flee from sexual immorality because it's such a unique bringing together of two people. Sex is so intimately personal that it, should only, that it should only be experienced with that covenant marriage partner. It's part of the uniquely close relationship of marriage. And so along those lines, there is a, um, there is a long Christian tradition of viewing sex as a remembrance, a celebration, even a renewal of that relationship. Okay, so the background to that is that in the Bible, we see that God makes covenants. He makes covenants with his people, and then he sets up ways for those covenants to be remembered, celebrated, and renewed. So, for example, the feasts in the Old Testament. 
or even things like, you know, piles of stones and physical memorials that they would see as they went by. In the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is this reminder and celebration of the covenant. And the Bible says that marriage is a covenant. That's why you see Malachi 2 and Proverbs 2 there on your notes. Marriage is a vow to one another of lifelong sacrificial love until death forces you to part. What makes a marriage? What makes the marriage is the vows of covenant love, exclusive lifelong covenant love. And so if marriage is a covenant, and if covenants are supposed to be remembered and celebrated and renewed, then it makes sense that sex would be one of the ways to do those things with the marriage covenant. In marriage, I give myself completely and exclusively to my spouse. And each time we have sex, I do it again. Tim and Kathy Keller write, Sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. On your wedding day, you say, I do. And sex should mean, I still do. I continue to give myself wholly to you. And that means that sex is not just um, like a a neutral add-on that's kind of optional in marriage. It's really important. Now again... As I said at the beginning, we should be very sensitive to the many possible complications here, including sickness and age and injury and disease and psychological and emotional scars and sin and so forth. Okay, so we need to be very careful here. But in general, we still have to say, biblically, marital sex is very important. Think about the parallel with the Lord's Supper, which is a covenant remembrance. There may be reasons why a church might have to sometimes skip observing the Lord's Supper. Like, if everybody gets sick, (laughs) you can't observe the Lord's Supper. Well, that's understandable. But if we started skipping the Lord's Supper and it didn't bother us at all, then that would actually be very concerning, right? Because it's this really important remembrance and renewal of our covenant with God through Christ. So, why did God give us sex? As a symbol and expression, this is the third bullet up there, of unique oneness, the unique relationship of marriage. All right, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Thank you all for staying for this. I, <laughs> there were a few times as I worked on this that I thought to myself, I wonder if anybody's going to stay. <laughs> just, it's so complicated. Um, so thank you for having the courage to be here. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Deuteronomy 24, 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Not sure how they afforded that. Um, I assume he was working at home, but um, not liable for the army or any other public duty that might take him away from home. Sex isn't all the point there, but I don't think we can say it's none of the point there. Here, God is supporting marital joy. 
God in his law for Israel, supporting marital joy. But there's something else to notice here as well. The ESV translates this mutually, to be happy with his wife. And that's true, but many translations put more emphasis on the tense of this verb, which literally means that he makes his wife happy. So most translations say, to bring happiness to his wife. And so that points us ahead towards something we're going to talk about later on, that in sex, God intends for us to focus not on ourselves, but on giving our spouse happiness. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's a hard one for me to find sometimes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. All right, and verse 9. Just the first phrase. Well, let's read the whole verse to remind ourselves of the, the mood of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So that, that first phrase is so beautiful. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And that phrase is in Ecclesiastes where we're reminded that life is hard. Marriage is hard work. God, Genesis 1 and 2, God calls a married couple to work together. He makes them a team to work. But marriage is hard work. And in a broken world, there are pressures and there's suffering that are very difficult. Marriage is not easy as long as we're here under the sun. It's kind of like being co-combatants in the war of life. And yet, in the midst of those challenges, God gives sex as a blessing. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. In a healthy relationship, sex can be a little refuge in the midst of the war. It can sometimes make the world and its troubles seem like they're a million miles away, and that is how God intended it. All right, that's Ecclesiastes 9.9. Now, Next, we come to Song of Solomon. And it's often been said that Song of Solomon is like an expansion of Ecclesiastes 9.9 or that Ecclesiastes 9.9 tells you the theme of Song of Solomon. So just turn a couple of pages ahead um, to the book of Song of Solomon. And I'm not going to take you to a lot of specific verses here um, because it's actually a big book and there are some interpretational challenges along the way. But um, if you're married, and you've never tried to benefit from God's Word in Song of Solomon for your marriage, I want to challenge you to do that. And one of the best ways to do that is with a brief commentary, because there are some interpretive challenges in Song of Solomon. There is a free commentary that I highly recommend online. It is by Douglas O'Donnell. It's from the Gospel Coalition, has a free commentary on every book of the Bible on their site. Um, and it is really, really well done. So that's one that you might use. It's not long. It's easy to read, um, but a really good summary. So first question, is Song of Solomon about sex and marriage, or is it a metaphor of Christ and the church? It's interesting that Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, she says, love is the very flame of Yahweh the very flame of the Lord. 
real love comes from the God who is love. Right? The cross is the greatest display of love. And our relationship with Christ is the great fulfillment of marriage. Revelation chapter 19 foretells the marriage supper of the Lamb, the beginning of this eternal relationship of Christ and his followers together forever. So John Piper, John Piper calls marriage a parable of permanence. It points us to the permanence of our covenant relationship with God through Christ. So on our list of purposes, this is the fourth one, for the remembrance and expectation of our joyful relationship with Christ. The, the point is not, just to be clear, the point is not that we'll have a sexual relationship with Christ one day. That's not it at all. The point is that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is an earthly blessing that points us ahead to the ultimate eternal blessing of being together with Christ forever. And so the sexual joys of marriage are a reminder that God gives us such good gifts and he's brought us into his family and we're going to live in perfect love and fellowship with him forever. So in that sense, yes, Song of Solomon points to the good news of Jesus Christ because it points to the way in which the joys of marriage set our hopes on the greater joys that marriage is a parable of with Christ forever. However, that is hardly a full explanation of what Song of Solomon means. That is true. But Song of Solomon is a lengthy series of love songs that are very physically and sexually explicit. The lovers describe each other's bodies in great detail to our ears 3,000 years later, sometimes humorous detail because we don't compliment each other's bodies like they did 3,000 years ago with the same metaphors. Um, There are daytime and nighttime sexual escapades in the book. There are even references to sexual positions and graphic sexual talk in the book. The center of the book of Song of Solomon, like literally dead center if you count the lines of poetry, is chapter 5, verse 1, which ends, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. And it's obviously talking about sexual love there. Now, the book doesn't tell us who the people are, and that's obviously intentional because the point is to portray an example, a model of a healthy sexual relationship. So, Song of Solomon does point us to Christ and salvation and the ultimate fulfillment of marriage, but it is more directly exemplifying a delightful sexual relationship in marriage. The song tells the love story of a young couple who, with the blessing of friends and family, celebrates their commitment and consummation. So, I'm going to share just a few observations from the book, but this is not like a list of the most important things in the book. Um, I very much encourage you to go read it yourself with O'Donnell or a study Bible or something in hand. Here are just a few things that, from my perspective as a pastor, um, kind of stick out to me. Number one, uh, no, uh, it's not on screen. It's just in your notes, right? Number one, she seems to have some insecurity with her body. And he responds by extensively expressing his delight in it. And maybe men sometimes struggle to understand or to remember how common uh, this body insecurity is for women, especially living in our culture today. 
So it's instructive to see how hard the man works to assure her of how beautiful her body is to him. He goes on and on <laughs> uh, to try to verbalize to her how much he loves her body. And that can be instructive for us as men. But it leads to an even more important point. And so even though I'm here on this first point about Song of Solomon, this is where I'd like us to go to Proverbs chapter 5. Um, so would you go ahead and turn there with me? So that's backwards in our Bible a little ways. Proverbs chapter 5. <clears throat> All right, Proverbs 5, beginning in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Okay, so pause there. So the illustrations there are not familiar to us. They're not the same illustrations we would use, but the point is obviously to be satisfied with your wife. Drink from your own cistern, he says. Verse 19, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Probably not the way to compliment her today, but it was the way to compliment her then. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always. Thank you, sir. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. Okay, the key is to see that verse 19 is a command specifically for the husband in the context of be satisfied with her. And so the meaning is find your delight in her body, not anyone else's body. Say, this is the wife God has graciously given to me. Her body is the one God designed for me. And then set your mind and your heart to find your joy in that body, not anywhere else. It doesn't matter how your wife compares to someone else. When I do premarital counseling, I say to couples, you know, I, I look at the guy and I say, no, you tell her, I'm sure you, 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 you probably tell her that she's the most beautiful woman in the world, right? Because I know that if they've dated more than, you know, two weeks, he's told her that. And so they nod their heads and they smile real big, right? And then I say to them, now you realize that's not like objectively true. (laughs) She's not actually the most beautiful woman in the world. But why do you say that? And they know, most of them already realize that what he means by those words is you're the most beautiful woman in the world to me. And from a Christian standpoint, that's not just like nice fuzzy talk. That's true because God brought that wife to you. So I'm incorporating this under this first point from Song of Solomon that while there seems to be some kind of body insecurity on her part, the husband in the song praises her body. He makes it clear to her that he chooses to find great delight in her. He makes it sound like she's the most beautiful in the world, not because objectively she is, but because she's his. She's the one whom God has given to 
Okay? Will you go back? You can go back over to Song of Solomon now. Um, number two, he works hard to communicate with loving, tender, creative words. Now, men, words may not always be the most natural thing for us as much as it might be for our wives, but we need to seek the Lord's help and work hard at it and try because our wives need our loving, tender, creative communication. Society and pornography put such a dominant emphasis on physical touch and on turning a woman on with physical touch. And there is a certain amount of truth to that. But words are also so important. Woo her, draw her affections, care for her, listen to her, build her up. You see a lot of that in Song of Solomon. He's not just touching her. He's using his words to, to care for her. And that connects to the next point, number three. He is not only, let's see, we're on the back now, right? Number three, he is not only her lover, but also her friend. And really, biblically speaking, in terms of how a relationship develops, it is friend first, lover second, after the marriage covenant. She says in chapter 5, verse 16, this is my beloved and this is my friend. There is so much more to this relationship than just sex. Remember, sex is just a larger, a small part of the larger union of these two lives together. So he is also her friend. In, in chapter five, right at the, I mean, in chapter eight, right at the end of the songs, you have this scene where she is. She says she is leaning on him, and it doesn't seem at that point to be like a sexual scene. It's more like he is her support. She is leaning on him. Uh, number four, she sometimes plays hard to get drawing him to pursue her, but often seeks him for sex with creative initiation. The wife prepares and plans and pursues him sexually. The, the, the love in this book is very, it's very playful. It's, it's an enjoyable game, I think you could say, and she's a very active participant in, the, in that game. Now, I'm, I am not saying that... Um, Like, how do you say this? Pornography and such are, are portraying sex in such a way that the pressure is like women should want sex like men. I'm not saying that. And I'm also not diminishing the importance of a man's leadership in certain ways sexually. But the woman here in Song of Solomon is certainly not just like a passive participant. Um, she is a, she's putting thought and effort into their sexual relationship. It's very, very evident. Number five, the book commends watchfulness against the things that can spoil sexual enjoyment in a relationship. Um, you, you may, you're probably familiar with this verse because it's just kind of broadly quoted in various ways. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. That's chapter 2, verse 15. Now, I admit, there are several ways to interpret that, um, but it could be talking about the things that can spoil our sexual enjoyment. Interesting, there's a part of Song of Solomon later where there's a section where it seems like the man is being insensitive and the woman is being selfish. Like There's this part where it kind of goes wrong for them for a little while. Um, and, you know, in the world's portrayal of sex, it just, it just happens. But in marriage, sex is part of an overall relationship that needs to be tended and needs to be well taken care of. So we might say that we need to guard against the foxes <laughs> 
if we're going to continue enjoying the sexual relationship. We've got to take care of the relationship as a whole um, and be aware of those things. Number six, there is in Song of Solomon a dynamic of permission. There is a lot of initiating in Song of Solomon by both the man and the woman, and that's instructive. There is, there is pursuing, even pleading, really, but at the same time, there is not coercion. There is clearly a, this boundary of permission um, that, that there should be. Number seven, there is an exclusive commitment. Chapter eight, verse six is, is beautiful. She says to him, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, both internally and externally sealed to that one person in a covenant of lifelong sacrificial love. And that's where she goes on to talk how, about how powerful sex is. Because of that, let, this, let the two of us be sealed. Set me as a seal upon your heart and your arm. And then number eight, the end of the book is intriguing. Okay, now, this is, again, it's, there are a lot of verses in Song of Solomon where there's questions about how to best interpret them. I might not be right um, about these two, but when I read it, 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 it just jumped out to me because of how it seems to maybe correspond with something that men may generally struggle more in the second to last verse, and then women may generally struggle more with in the, in the last verse. Again, I, I, and I, I'm not trying to unfairly stereotype. I'm just, the, the, the general patterns seem to be true. So what I'm referring to is, first of all, in the second to last verse, it's, it's chapter 8, verse 13, he says that he wants to hear his wife's voice. Now, I don't know for sure what he means, but it's just interesting to me because, in general, men tend to want sex more than we want communication. And we sometimes don't want to put in the hard work of listening well, caring well, understanding well, asking questions. Um, And so it's just fascinating to me that the second to last verse is him wanting to hear her voice. And the last verse in the book, she is urging him to have sex with her. She is putting effort into their sexual relationship and even initiating it herself. That's just a fascinating little combination of two things. And there the book ends. So that's Song of Solomon. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through five. All right, first Corinthians seven one. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, there are a number of interpretive challenges in that verse. Um including whether or not he's quoting them. There aren't any quotation marks in the original manuscripts. So um, is he quoting them? What does he mean by not to have sexual relations, literally not to touch? And, so, and then is the word woman referring to women in general or to his wife? I can't go through all the options there right now. I'm just going to, I got to jump right to my understanding of what this means. And my understanding of it is based primarily on the rest of the context in 1 Corinthians 7. I think what he goes on to say 
explains what he means in verse 1. So, I do believe that Paul is quoting the Corinthians, that some Christians in Corinth were saying it is good to abstain from sex. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 4 that there were Christian teachers who were forbidding marriage. Again, it was an immature zeal. They were telling people, you'd be more spiritual if you, if you didn't marry. And so that may be along these same lines. But based on what Paul says in the next verses, it seems that it was married people in Corinth who were saying it's good not to have sex. And it seems they had spiritual reasons for it. Because in verse 5, he talks about praying. So maybe they thought it was more important to pray or to tell other people about Jesus or to get ready for the return of Christ. It just didn't maybe seem spiritual enough to spend time enjoying sex. And so he says in verse 2, he's heard that they say that, or they wrote that. He says, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, I think this could be translated, because there are so many immoralities. It's plural. There's so many immoralities. It sounds like the Christians in Corinth were struggling a lot with sexual temptation while they were saying, we're too spiritual to have sex with our wives. Okay? But because there's so many immoralities, the rest of verse 2 says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, I know that when you read that at first, it sounds just like he's saying, you ought to get married. Everybody ought to get married. I do not think that's what he's saying. And it's because the, the word have there is commonly used in the New Testament for sex, a sexual relationship. We just don't use the word that way. So, for example, go back to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. He says in that verse, there's this really bad immorality going on in the church. An end of 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. What does he say it is? A man, what? Has his father's wife. Same word. He has his father's wife. It does not mean he's married to her. It means he's having sex with her, right? So this was a common way to say this. Go back to 1 Corinthians 7 now. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, probably referring to his wife. But because there is so much immorality, so many immoralities, each man should be in the sexual relationship with his own wife and each woman with her own husband rather than saying we're too spiritual to have sex. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So there he says it. That just confirms what we've, been, what we've just been saying. So that's the principle. And he uses in verse 3 the word for an obligation to fulfill. See also the beginning of verse 5 where he says, do not deprive one another. So if someone said, I'm so spiritual that I'm not going to have sex with my spouse, Paul says you are depriving your spouse of an obligation you have to them. Married couples have a duty to one another sexually. That's the principle. Now, there are two at least two huge challenges in regard to that principle that I, we have to address. 
First, there are the complications when one spouse is not physically able to have intercourse, when one spouse has betrayed the trust of another, when one spouse is rude and selfish and uncaring, when one spouse is trying to get the others to do things that are uncomfortable or, or demeaning or, or painful or distasteful. These are, these are just examples of the kind of serious factors that can make it very complicated. And there's so much we could say about that if we had time, like that no one should ever have to do something that's painful, harmful, degrading, or distasteful to them. So there are a lot of things that we could talk about, that complications that need sensitivity and they need wisdom in how they're handled. But we can't let the complications keep us from hearing the principle in God's Word that married couples do have a duty to one another sexually. The other big challenge here is that some sinful and selfish men take this principle and they abuse it in a very, very damaging way. They say, well, my wife has a duty to me and the Bible tells my wife to submit to me. Therefore, my wife has to give me whatever I want sexually. And that is a horrible way to look at this. First of all, that misunderstands authority and submission in marriage. If you have thought that way, I would urge you to read Jonathan Lehman's new book on authority. L-E-E-M-A-N, Jonathan Lehman. It is titled, and this title is instructive, Authority, colon, How Godly Rule Protects the Vulnerable, Strengthens communities, and promotes human flourishing. You see how we could apply that right to marriage? How a godly husband's leadership protects the vulnerability of his wife, strengthens the relationship with his wife, and promotes the flourishing of his wife and that relationship? That's what godly leadership does in a home. And he, in that book, he clarifies what a man's authority means in marriage. And it is certainly not demanding that your wife give you whatever sex you want. So, so that view misunderstands authority in marriage. But even bigger than that, that idea that she has to submit to me and I can just demand from her whatever I want, that just completely ignores the rest of what the Bible says about marriage and love and care and Christ and sacrifice and all those things. It focuses on just this one thing. My wife has a duty to me while ignoring everything else. So that's a huge problem. And no man should ever force his wife into sex whether through physical threat or through other types of control and manipulation, even if they're not physical. Men, we are the physically stronger sex. It's, have I, did I say this just a few weeks ago? It is hard to say these words. It is important to say these words. The average male can take the life of the average female with his bare hands. That is the reality of humanity. That is why 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Men, you dwell with your wife in an understanding way, with honor as the weaker vessel, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Okay? So we, men, you, we must never, in any sort of threatening or controlling way, be placing our spouse in a place of, of fear or, or danger or like she's got to go along with what we want and again, that even if we're not physically threatening, we should never be demanding or, or bossing her around. That is not what our headship in marriage is about, okay? Woo her with your tender, loving care and leadership so that she wants to have sex with you and learn how to make sex delightful for her. 
Okay, so that's another very important, very difficult challenge related to this principle. However, we need to say again that the fact that some men take that principle and sinfully abuse it and misuse it and twist it still doesn't throw out the principle. The principle still remains that husbands and wives have a loving duty to one another sexually. All right, now, verse 4, back to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4 shows us the godly mindset that makes this beautiful and healthy. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you only read half the verse, you miss the whole point. Because the point is that it's mutual. My body belongs to my wife. That means that my goal is her sexual pleasure. Her body belongs to me, which means that her goal is my sexual pleasure. And that is one of the secrets of joyful marital sex because that is Christ-like love. Christ-like love is sacrificial love. So it means sex that is focused on serving the other person. All right. John Piper is going to go for it here. You ready? Husbands, if it is your joy to bring her satisfaction, you will be sensitive to what she needs and wants. You will learn that the preparation for satisfactory sexual intercourse at 10 p.m. begins with tender words at 7 a.m. and continues through the day as kindness and respect. And when the time comes, you will not come on like a Sherman tank, but you will know her pace and bring her skillfully along. Unless she gives you the signal, you will say her climax, not mine, is the goal. And you will find, in the long run, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we could reverse that and state it in a way that was specifically worded to wives. But neither John Piper nor I is willing to do that. Uh, We are wiser than that. But it could be reversed uh, and said in another way. Uh, again, the, the Kellers write, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it. In short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. And they say, very frankly, it took years for us to be good at sexually satisfying one another, but the patience pays off. Okay? So back to our text in First Corinthians 7. For those who were treating sex as if it was something optional in marriage, Paul says, no, as wrong thinking. And so verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan wants to tear down marriages And one of the ways you can fight back and smack Satan in the face is by being proactive in your sexual relationship. Now, that does not mean that I can say, I have an excuse for sin because my spouse isn't giving me enough sex. That is completely false. We can live in holy sexuality no matter what, just as singles can live in holy sexuality. And yet it's true that God's Word says one of the ways we can fight off the attacks of Satan on our marriage is by proactively pursuing a healthy sexual relationship. Is it, Piper says, is it not a mark of amazing grace 
that on top of all the pleasure that the sexual side of marriage brings, it also proves to be a fearsome weapon against our ancient foe. That's good. Okay, let's go to Ephesians 5. Now, Go ahead and breathe out. You're familiar with this section in Ephesians 5, probably. That is verses 22 through 33 that are about marriage. The section doesn't specifically refer to sex but it does speak specifically to husbands in a fascinating way that we might overlook. And I just want to remind us about it. I'm not going to dig into this passage as a whole. So first of all, it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that is an incredible call to sacrificial love. Men, die to yourself for the sake of your wife. Give yourself up for the sake of your wife like Christ gave himself up for you. And that's, I think, in a, in a significant sense, that is the foundation of a healthy marriage right there. But now, what I want us to show you, what I want to show you is the motivation that we might skip over. And we might skip it because it might sound a little bit unspiritual to us. But God's word says it, so we shouldn't skip it. So it's at the end of verse 28, and it says, He who loves his wife loves himself. Because the two of you are one. So when you lay down your life for her, and serve her, and help her, and build her up, you're actually caring for yourself too. And generally speaking, that means your sexual relationship will be better too. Now, that does not mean that you say, I did all this work around the house, now you have to have sex with me. That is coercion, that is, that is manipulation, that is don't do that. And wives, you should never use sex as a bargaining chip to get them to do what you want. That dishonors this gift from, from God. But God is telling husbands that if we will forget about ourselves by God's strength, by God's spirit, and lay down our life for that woman God has given us, in the end, we'll probably get more out of marriage than we ever dreamed. It's the paradox of the Christian life. He who loses his life finds it. And so oftentimes, the more a man sacrifices himself like Christ, dying to himself to serve his family, the more his wife is interested in a sexual relationship. Now, I know this is not absolute, we can lay down our life for somebody who betrays us and abandons us. But even so, it was still right to lay down our life in love. Like sacrificial love is always right. So this is not a guarantee that you're going to have an amazing marriage if you are like Christ in sacrificially laying down your life for her. But sacrificial love is always right. And most of the time in a Christian marriage, the more a husband leads by laying down his life for his wife and family, the better the marriage will be and probably the better the sex will be. Now, our last verse is Hebrews 13, verse 4. If you'll turn over there, Hebrews 13, 4, and then we're going to look at verse 5 also.
Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So hold marriage in honor. That means consider it to be a very weighty thing, very important, given by God, a, a billboard for the gospel, for, the, for Christ and the glory of God. And then guard it tightly. Keep it undefiled. Don't bring any type of immorality into that relationship. And then it's good to keep going into verse 5, which says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I know the topic in verse 5 is money, but the principle applies back to marriage as well. We can be content with what we have in marriage because we have God, His presence, His fellowship, His help. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me, no matter how broken a marriage might be. Contentment is really, really essential for holy sexuality. That doesn't mean, though, that we should just shrug our shoulders if our marriage is struggling, if sex in our marriage is struggling. If we honor marriage, if we give it the God-given weight we should give it, then we'll give everything we've got to it, independence on the Lord, to try to heal that marriage. It is really not... I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a powerful contentment in a broken marriage in which there's just nothing else I could possibly do about it. And yet, more often... <laughs> What we need is a more zealous desire to to heal and build up and see God glorified through that marriage. It is a great mystery, he calls it, a remarkable truth that has to be revealed by God that marriage is about Christ and the church. Marriage is for the glory of God. So for the glory of God, because of our love for God, we can't just say, well, marriage stinks, but oh well. No, it matters. It matters. And so we can put time and effort and even hard work totally prayerfully and dependent on the Lord into trying to build or heal up even our sexual relationship. Remembering that sex is only part of a bigger picture. It's a symbol and expression of the broader unity of two people's lives. And so usually the best way to work on the sexual part of your relationship is to work on the rest of your relationship. It is the rest of the relationship that needs to be stronger that needs to be deeper, that needs to be closer. I'm not saying you can't specifically work on the sexual part, and you can, and Song of Solomon might help. But again, if we honor marriage, we'll go after that growth with all of our hearts. Oh, God, grow me as a wife. Grow me as a husband. Grow this relationship. That's not, that's not insignificant, and that's not unspiritual. Like, which is more spiritual? I want our marriage to be closer or I want to pray better. Which is more spiritual? No, (laughs) right? And so for the glory of God, because we honor it, Hebrews 13, 4, we should have this deep longing and this intense commitment that as much as lies within us, we're going to build a healthy marriage, including the sexual relationship part of it. Okay, we made it through. God helped us. In my mind and heart, it was this one constant. I was in two levels. I was talking to you, and I was 
saying, am I getting myself in trouble? Am I getting myself in trouble? Am I getting myself in trouble? (laughs) Which is just selfish. I shouldn't be thinking that, but I'm just being honest with you that that was what I was thinking. Um, And it's partly because I care for you and I don't want to confuse you. You know, I don't want to say what is harmful or unhelpful and um, and, and I, I know you and love you. So God helped us. Let's pray that he'll continue to help us as we try to process these things and take them home with us. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Uh, we are not sufficient for these things. Like Paul says, we're just clay pots. And in our clay pots, we hold this treasure. And that treasure might be the treasure of a marriage given by God. And we're holding it in a clay pot that feels like it's going to break and fall apart and it's so weak. So we look to you. you. Jesus, you are strong and you are kind and you showed it to us on the cross. So our hope is not in ourselves but in you. But that doesn't mean we are just going to be passive about this. Stir up in our hearts a zeal for God-honoring marriages, for your glory. Father, would you bless those here who are single, those who have been married and are not any longer, those who have had very painful sexual experiences in their lives, those for whom there are things I said today that were painful and I don't even realize it. I didn't know. I pray that you would comfort them, strengthen them, help them. Let there not be confusion from what has been taught today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.